Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Podcast. So as I said, we are in the book of Ephesians. And so I want to give you some background to the book as a whole before we dive into our text this morning. This is very important to set the groundwork. Um, for those of you who um, are, are, are considering joining us in your devotions, here's the commentary that we're going to be using as our foundational text. This is the exegetical commentary on the New Testament by Clinton E. Arnold. Um, this commentary here is what the preachers will be using as a foundational text. And I encourage you, it's, it's inexpensive, 26 bucks, to purchase it and to read Ephesians while going through this at the same time, okay? Every time we go through a book of the Bible, we'll be sure to have a foundational text that we'll use so that you can even hold us accountable if we, if we err, okay? We want to be as accurate as possible with the scriptures. I also encourage you, if you do not plan to purchase the commentary, that's okay, to start reading through Ephesians. Start reading through it. Start meditating on the verses, Okay? I should mention, I don't think we have slides up today, huh? Okay, that's okay, that's okay. My email was going to be posted up for those who wanted to email me about questions. Um, so if you have questions, please come talk to me, and I'll make sure to get your email. Oh, excellent. Yes, yeah, so that'll be up. You're going to have questions today after today's sermon, I assure you. It's a heavy topic, so if you have questions, I'll make that available. So let's begin uh, uh, to set the foundation of Ephesians. It has been said that the book of Ephesians summarizes what it means to be a Christian better than any other book in the Bible. It is amazing that the whole book of Ephesians is only 2,500 words. Isn't that crazy? And yet, it tackles topics that we struggle with and need guidance on today. Here's what the book tackles. This is just a small list. It tackles training new believers, the issue of divine sovereignty and human free will, which we're going to talk about today. It tackles spiritual warfare, spiritual formation, Gender roles in marriage and racial reconciliation. Wow. And just this book with 2,500 words. Well, who wrote the book? When was it written? And who was it written to? There's much debate about who wrote Ephesians, but it's the conviction of the preachers in this church that it was most likely Paul. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And there's, there are arguments you will read about if you would like, but we're convinced that it's most likely Paul written sometime in his imprisonment in Rome around 60 to 62 AD. And we should also note that uh, Colossians and Philemon, you know, those books were written during that same period. Now, Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, as he says in the beginning of a book, and how this is supposed to happen is he'll write to a city, and then you're supposed to circulate the letter to the various house churches in the city. So it was kind of uncalled for to have a church this big in the New Testament days, okay? Now, how significant was Ephesus as a historical place? In the New Testament era, the city of Ephesus was called the mother city of Asia because of its influence over politics, commerce, and the religious atmosphere of the province. The population of the city ranged from 200,000 to 250,000 people inside and outside of the city walls. Because of its influence, it would be accurate to characterize Ephesus as the leading city of the richest region of the Roman Empire. Isn't that interesting? At this time, only Rome and Alexandria were larger. And so because Ephesus was thriving economically, everybody wanted to move there. Everybody wanted to be a part of Ephesus. Now, let me give you some religious background for Ephesus. Okay, and then I'm going to tell you why all of this historical stuff is necessary for the book. 
Although Ephesus was a religiously pluralistic society like much of Rome, it's unique because of the extraordinary prominence of this goddess named Artemis, also called, called Diana. This is significant. Artemis's relationship to the city of Ephesus could be called a covenant bond, a covenant bond with the city of Ephesus. The size and grandeur of her temple, which was located out of the city walls, was praised as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, and the columns of her temple were 60 feet high. They worshiped this goddess in this city. The influence of Artemis permeated every area of life. The temple was where you went to go do your banking, if you were a Christian or non-Christian. Um, her, her images were on the coins, and she was called the guardian and protector of the city. Now, what I found even more interesting is that Artemis was called the queen of heaven, and she was literally called the Lord and Savior. The Lord and Savior of Ephesus. The signs of the zodiac were placed prominently around her neck as a necklace. This is Artemis I'm speaking of. And this conveyed to our worshipers that she possessed authority and power over man's fate. So why is this significant, this historical background? Because I need you to see that when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, this is the culture they're living in, surrounded by this goddess Artemis and her followers. So the background information is important because it helps us to understand how to interpret Ephesians. Remember chapter 6 when Paul speaks about spiritual warfare? He doesn't do that on accident. There are demonic things happening in Ephesus. So there are two things I want you to keep in mind as you're reading through the book of Ephesians. The first is many people who formerly engaged in magical practices became part of the Ephesian church. Those who used to worship Artemis or Zeus or Apollo became Christian. The second is the account shows the incredibly strong pull that certain features of the spiritual environment had on believers. In other words, if you just got saved and your child is sick and God's not answering your prayer, it is so easy to go to Artemis or to fall back into sin to ask her to help you heal your child. So it took the sovereign intervention of God for the Ephesians to be convicted that they should completely repent of their ongoing utilization of amulets, charms, invocations, and traditional means of gaining spiritual power. And so the purpose, why was Ephesians written? Now, of course, it's hard to say because unlike 1 Corinthians or Galatians or Philemon, there was a clear reason Paul was writing. There was an issue he was targeting. In Ephesians, there's no clear issue. There's no clear reason of why Paul is writing. There's nothing that's really promoting him. And so I'm in agreement with our commentator that Ephesians was written for this purpose. Paul wrote this letter to a large network of local churches in Ephesus and the surrounding cities to affirm them in their new identity in Christ as a means of strengthening them in their ongoing struggle with the powers of darkness to promote a greater unity between Jews and Gentiles, racial reconciliation, within and among the churches of the area, and to stimulate an ever-increasing transformation of their lifestyles and to greater conformity to the purity and holiness that God has called them to display. Amen. 
And so that's the historical background that I think sets the stage for the whole book. Now let's get into our text this morning, okay? So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now catch verse 3 and 4 are just so important. Paul says, praise God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heaven. Paul, you know what kind of blessings we get from God? Paul is telling us right there, the nature of your blessings are spiritual. Some of us grew up in churches where the preacher said, your blessing will be a new Lexus, or your blessing will be a new house, or your blessing will be a good marriage or healthy children. But Paul was saying, the nature of the blessings that have been promised to you are spiritual. And we're going to find out today just exactly what are these spiritual blessings. In our passage from verse 1 to verse 12, there are seven spiritual blessings that every believer gets, no matter of your income status, your intellect, or whatever you're going through in life, you get these equally. But then he moves on to verse 4, for he has chosen us in him. Now, 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 bear with me. In verse 4. We're looking at a, a subordinate conjunction. It really should probably say in the translations, Lord help them, because verse 3 says, praise the Lord our Father, dot, 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 verse 4, because, because he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless in his sight, in love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that he favored us within the beloved. My brothers and sisters, I want to take as our theme today, it's going to be heavy, Lord have mercy, but we're going to do it. I want to take as our theme today, you have been chosen in Jesus before the universe was even created, because God loved you while you were a stranger in Christ's enemy. I'll say that again. You have been chosen in Jesus before the universe was even created because God loved you while you were a stranger in Christ's enemy. But what does it mean to be predestined? (laughs) This is a loaded term uh, which comes with a lot of baggage. And so we're going to take our time to unpack this term this morning. Churches have separated Theological factions have been made because of this word and doctrine of predestination. Now, though this word is common in the theological literature and among seminarians and and theology geeks, it's actually interesting to note that the verb to predestine only occurs six times in the New Testament. And two of those times are found in our Ephesians chapter 1. So what does it mean to predestine something, right? If you look at the language properly in, your, in the commentaries or if you understand a little bit of Greek, you would see that to predestine something means to decide beforehand or to predetermine. So in context, according to Paul, predestination is God's sovereign act of choosing or electing his people. In other words... God decided beforehand and thus predetermined who would be saved in Christ. My Lord, that's tough. Now, this raises a host of questions. Quincy, if God chose me before I even existed, 
Did I even have an option to be a non-Christian? Was I free to choose otherwise? Said another way, how was God truly in control of everything, including my salvation, yet I'm still free? Or how do I know I'm one of the chosen? Am I just sitting here deceiving myself? Maybe God didn't choose me. Now, if, if, if I'm chosen beforehand, when exactly am I saved? If I've been chosen from the beginning, was I saved when I was a baby? If I'm not chosen, does that mean Jesus didn't die for me? Or did Jesus die only for those he chose? My Lord. Now, given the nature of a sermon and the time we have, I cannot answer all of these questions in depth. For a deep theological treatment, I encourage you to join Foundations, which is our Sunday school that starts at 8.30 to 9.45 a.m., and it's led by Kyle Fox and Brian Atkinson, and they're doing a marvelous job. Amen, aren't they? So... Please join up there. And for my theologians and seminarians in the room, I cannot capture every nuance that exists. There are, there are thousands of years of, of, of documentation and letters written and ink spilled on this issue. But I think that we can focus on the meat of the matter. I think something constructive can come from what Paul is teaching us here. So let us look at what Paul says about predestination once again, and we'll begin at verse 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. Then we're going to go down to verse 11. For Uh, uh, excuse me, 11. We have also received, I love this, an inheritance in him. The inheritance was predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of not my will, your will, their will, his will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. My Lord, So we see at the outset that there is one God who sovereignly, what does sovereignly mean? That is with supreme power, with control, with legal authority. One God who is sovereign. That is, you have all the power. This God has history in the palm of his hand. Do you understand that? History belongs to God, not Artemis, not any of these other deities in the city of Portland. There is not one event or episode of life that happens without his permission or knowledge. He is the God of history, and he is, and he is sovereignly unfolding his plan for the redemption of humanity. But we need to address this foundational question. We have to address it. How is it that God has chosen me, yet I am free? How is it that God has chosen me, Yet I am free to do otherwise. New Testament scholar Dr. Donald Carson in his book, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, shows that there are a host of biblical passages affirming God's sovereignty, which are too numerous to read here during our time this morning, but are summarized under four different headings in his book. But then on the other hand, Dr. Carson also shows under nine different headings that human beings are free and responsible moral agents. So the principal challenge that faces any account 
of God's providential governance of the world is going to be how to reconcile divine sovereignty and human freedom. Here I want to highlight three orthodox competing views in this respect. My Lord, Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism. My Lord, have mercy. We should note, for some people, those are fighting words, but we're going to define them in just a moment. We should note that Paul does not give an answer to the question, how man is free and yet God is in control of everything. And in fact, no New Testament writer gives us an answer or resolves the question of human freedom and divine sovereignty. So what I present to you this morning are man-made theories that are most likely wrong. Okay? It's, it's just a fact. Now, again, if you knew where you would wrong, where, if you knew where you had gone wrong, you would fix it. But they don't know where they've gone wrong. But I think there should be a level of humility to any of the three views to recognize we're probably missing it somewhere because God is a mystery. And anytime you try to understand the depths of God, we are prone to error. How can the finite transcend the infinite? It is a very difficult thing to drink up the sea or to erase the horizon from the sun. And so it's important for us to have humility, but to strive to love God with our minds and understanding this mystery. Just because it's mysterious doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to understand it. It's very important. Amen. And, and I also believe there are truth. There's some truth in each of these views as well. You'll know mine in just a moment uh, when I shy from what I believe the scriptures teach. Now, I understand that for some of us, the discussion of theological details can appear cold, unnecessary, and impractical, right? But the details matter very much in this case. Like a mother reading the fine print concerning the medicine she's about to give her sick child to prevent further harm. The focus on the details this morning is here to prevent further harm to the scriptures and further harm to God's character. We need to be precise. Integrity to scripture and integrity to God's character is at stake. Thinking hard together is another way we praise God, by loving him with our minds. And this is an act of devotion, what we're going to do together. And whenever you study the Lord's scriptures or whenever you study chemistry or physics or biology or sociology, you should be devoting the study to God. These are not acts of the secular person. These are acts of a divine activity of studying and researching how God has created the universe. Physics belongs to God's children, not the atheist. I digress. So... Please pay close attention and do not zone out. Stay with me here a little while longer and the Lord will bless you. These are not easy matters, but we have to, it's in the Bible, so we have to target it. Okay, I'll do my best to define my terms and I'll use as little theological jargon as possible. Amen. All right, so let us dive into these three different views. Um, again, we're trying to understand how God is in control of everything and yet, at the same time, man is free. Let's first look at Calvinism. How do they resolve this tension? Calvinism, or, or also called Reformed theology from John Calvin, the great reformer. The Calvinists affirm divine determinism. That is, God unilaterally causes everything to happen. God causes everything to happen. 
Now you might say, well then, how is man free if God is the cause of everything? Aha, the Calvinist says that everything being caused is not incompatible to freedom. And so they call this the compatibilist view. And so the Calvinist says, this is how man is free. That even though all of their actions are determined, they're free because they do it voluntarily. Even though they're influenced by other things, they do it voluntarily. In other words, in other words, God doesn't drag you kicking and screaming to what you're going to do. You do it on your own desire and will, but you could not have done otherwise. So all of your actions are caused, but you're doing what you want to do. And so a very strong view of sovereignty, but human freedom, they say, is really just redefined as doing what you want to do. And so in other words, your choice is genuine, even if it isn't free in the traditional sense. But now let's look at our Arminian brothers, our Arminian brothers and sisters. How do they rectify God being in control of everything, yet at the same time man being free? Well, the Arminian says, I don't like that definition of freedom. Man can truly do what they want to do. They can do otherwise. God does not cause any of our actions. And so the Arminian says that you are genuinely free. And so that seems to uphold God's freedom. Excuse me, that seems to uphold man's freedom. However, when it comes to God's sovereignty, what does the Arminian say? Well, they say what God did was God, before, before he made his plan, he looked into the future, seen what you will do, and then said, I'm going to declare this will happen. What you will do, I'm going to declare that this will be the thing that happens. And so for the Arminian, God is uh, sovereign by foreordaining what you're already going to do in the planning period. And so that's how they resolve those issues. But let's go to the third one, the last one, Molinism. Again, we're looking at the question, how is God in control of everything, yet man is free? Yet man is free. Remember, the Calvinist says God's in control of everything because he is the cause of everything. But man is free because they do what they want to do, though they can't do otherwise. And the Arminian says, well, man is genuinely free. They can do anything they want. God doesn't cause anything. But then they say God is sovereign because he decrees what he knows you're going to do, will do. But then let's go to the third, Molinism, which is opposed to both views. Okay, and this is named after the Jesuit counter-reformer Luis de Molina. Molinism simultaneously holds to a Calvinistic view of comprehensive divine sovereignty, and the Molinist agrees with the Arminians that man is completely free. But the Molinist strongly, strongly disagrees with the Arminian on how God is sovereign. Remember, the Arminian says... The way that God plans is that he looks into the future and sees what you will do. But the moment it says that's too late. How can you plan ahead of time by looking in the future? That seems to contradict terms. Like the plan ahead of time means you're doing it, you're decreeing before anything has transpired. Now, so the moment it says, no, 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 the Arminians are wrong in that respect. So then how does the Molinist rectify that God is in control of everything, yet man is free? All right, hold on with me just a little while longer. Molinism argues that God perfectly accomplishes his will in free creatures through the use of his omniscience, his all-knowingness. God omniscience, all-knowingness. Through God's omniscience, 
He knows what we could do. He knows what we would do. And he knows what we will do. The would do is what they call middle knowledge. You don't need to know that term, but the would do is middle knowledge. So this is how it happens. Before God created anything in the universe, he conceived of what all, of, all humanity would do freely. He conceived of what we all would do freely. And then God had made up his mind of what he wants to take place in this reality. And he actualized or created a world in which you have done everything freely, but he predestined the universe where you would act. And so man is free because you have lived out your life in complete freedom in the Arminian sense, but God is sovereign because not, is your, not only are your actions predetermined, but the universe is predetermined. Okay? I know it's a lot going on here, uh, uh, and it's okay if you can't catch all the nuances. So, Quincy, what does this all mean, you know? Uh, uh, how, what am I to do with this information? Well, I just wanted to give you the three orthodox positions at your disposal so that you know that these are things that you can adopt. However, it is my conviction that though Calvinism and Arminianism are orthodox positions, Calvinism seems to uphold God's sovereignty while at the same time smothering out freedom. It doesn't sound like freedom to me to do only what you desire to do, but you cannot do otherwise. It's hypothetical. But then the Arminian, though I believe their view of freedom is true, God doesn't seem to be very sovereign because he's only planning what he knows you will do. And so, my brothers and sisters, I am personally a Molinist. And not all the preachers are Molinists. Uh, uh, but I am a Molinist. And so what I want to do now is I want to present to you a robust theological treatment from my perspective, that is the Molinist perspective, that will tie everything together from our being predestined to our glorification in Jesus. In other words, I want to give you a model that will tie a pretty bow on how you are God's child and to answer some very significant questions regarding your salvation and the security of your salvation. Now, remember that the Bible teaches that every aspect of our being has been, effect, has been affected by the fall. Our mind is, has been marred by the fall. Our will, our affections, our relationships, our moral agency, and our moral compass. Thus, the lost are in bondage to sin, and we live under the sentence of death. Physical death, spiritual death, and eventually, with, without Christ, eternal death. But Quincy, if I'm in bondage to sin before I'm redeemed in Christ, how do I possess freedom? Could I choose not to sin? You see, since we've inherited Adam's corrupt state, human beings are moral agents who have the ability to be the originator of their decisions, their choices, and their actions. But this is important. But the limits of our ability is decided by our character. The limits of your freedom are hindered by your character. Think about it like someone who has been addicted to some substance. They freely got addicted to that substance, but what happens? They cannot freely choose otherwise. Their bad character has put them in a position where they cannot choose no longer not to hit that substance. And so when you are free, you are free until you make certain decisions that turn you into a slave to that thing. 
And so then how does this work with man? We are all addicts to sin. We are all addicted to sin. And so in other words, broken humanity lacks the ability to perfectly act in a way that is consistent with what is right and moral. Before Christ, we are truly slaves to sin. And so though the atheist can do good and the agnostic and they can do good, it is impossible for them to produce righteousness because they are incapable of perfectly obeying God's law. Thus, man in his natural broken state is incapable of responding to God. Our moral character and will is too broken to respond on our own. But this doesn't make sense. So how is the unbeliever able to respond to the gospel if they aren't capable of doing so? This is important. That means they must have grace in order to receive grace. Did not the Lord Jesus say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? Contra to the Calvinist model, which teaches that grace is irresistible. And I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters, but y'all teach that grace is irresistible. That is, when God gives you grace, you have to come to the faith. You have to come to the faith. You can't resist it. It seems to me that the Bible teaches that grace can be resisted. Riddle me this. If grace can never be resisted, and God wants everyone to come to him, truly want all of his children to be saved? I think God does want all humanity to come to him. So then, Quincy, how do we do it? By exercising faith. Faith is the necessary condition for receiving redemption. This would mean that the ability to receive salvation is genuinely available to all hearers of the good news. Now, let me provide you with an illustration, a lot of words. I'm throwing a lot of words at you this morning, and I'm not necessarily going very slow. But let me give you an illustration that I think paints exactly what my Molinist position is to the glory of God. Imagine waking up to find yourself being transported by an ambulance to the emergency room. It is clearly evident that your condition requires serious medical help. Now, if you do nothing, you will be delivered to the hospital. If you do nothing, you will be delivered to the hospital. However, if for whatever reason you demand to be let out, the driver will comply. He may express regret and give warnings, but he will still let you go. You receive no credit for being taken to the hospital, but you incur all the blame for refusing the services of the ambulance. You see, in this illustration, you do not do anything to arrive at the hospital. The only thing you have the ability to do is to resist. Any contribution made by you is hurtful. Now, let the ambulance serve as a metaphor for the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. If you believe in Jesus, it is because and only because the Holy Spirit brought you to faith. If you do not believe, it is only because you resisted the Holy Spirit. Thus, the only thing that you are able to do in response to God is negative. Now, you can resist the Holy Spirit and his grace, as I've been saying. But doesn't Paul not teach us in 1 Thessalonians that you can quench the Spirit? If you can quench the Spirit, how could it not be the case that the unbeliever can deny God's call for him to be his son? And so it seems to me that God is in control of the movement of our faith. Now, do you know what this implies? 
This implies that God's drawing grace should and would be efficacious for all, only if you never resist it. Let me say this another way. God's grace, which is what we need to have faith, is so persistent that it inevitably leads everyone to new life in Christ, unless you resist him. I'll say that again because many, many people miss the significance of what God is doing. Everybody and their mom would be found in Jesus Christ if only if they never said, let me out. And God is not a God who quickly lets you out. He continues to plead with you. Please do not leave. Do not leave. I want to get out of this ambulance. I want to get out. But he said, look, you're hurt. You're injured. You're not in the right. I'm not going to let you out in the middle of nowhere. Where would you go? You see, when you leave the ambulance, you're lost. You're sick. You're hurt. But just like God's mercies, oh, he does it again the next day. You find yourself in the ambulance the next day. God is trying to get out your heart saying, I need you. I need you. You deny him. So then it happens the next day. Every single day of your life, God has been trying to pursue you. And you would be redeemed if only you weren't silly and stubborn asking and telling him that I need to get out. Thus, the question is no longer, why do some believe, but rather, why doesn't everyone believe? Thus, salvation is completely and only a work of God, initiated by God, accomplished by God, and completed by the triune Godhead. But some might object and say, but Quincy, isn't faith a work? You say we don't have to do anything. I know I got some Calvinist brothers in here. <laughs> I can hear all the, the counter arguments. But I had, to, I had to target this one. But isn't faith something we do? If, if faith is something we do, then we really don't, it's really not only God's work. I, I'm doing something as well. And I'd agree and i say, yes, putting faith in Jesus is something we do. But what we fail to see is that in saying that, uh, 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 but what we fail to notice in saying that there has been a, uh, excuse me, excuse me. But what, is, what we fail to notice in saying that this is something we do, we commit what my logician friends call a, a, an equivocation. Logically speaking, all works are actions, but not all actions are works. All works are actions, but not all actions are works. In other words, faith is indeed an action, but it's not a work. In fact, Faith is the exact opposite of depending on yourself. It is the only attitude of the heart that says, I give up. I will not depend on myself or my good works any longer. I've never understood how receiving a gift makes it less gracious. And so despite my stubbornness and rebellion, God did not give up on me, and he will not give up on you. Like a persistent lover, he kept on wooing until at last his very persistence won the day. For those of us who actually believe in Jesus, his love and his mercy overcame our rebellion and our resistance. He kept on trying every single day without fail, and thus we came to him. But Quincy, if I'm chosen beforehand, did Jesus truly die for everyone? Because if God knew who he had picked beforehand, why would Jesus waste his time dying for those of whom the Father never gave him? What exactly did the death of Christ accomplish? What did the Father intend by offering his son as a sacrifice? My Arminian brothers believe in this thing called general atonement. They believe 
that death, uh, uh, they believe that Jesus died on the cross and obtained, uh, 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 Jesus died for everyone, but he secured salvation for no one. The Arminian believes Jesus died for everyone, but no one's salvation is secure. My Calvinist brothers believe Jesus only died for those whom God chose. He did not die for everyone. He died only for those whom the Father has given him. I love my brothers, but they're both wrong. You see, the Molinist perspective says Jesus provided salvation for everyone, but the benefits of his atonement are applied to those who believe. Jesus died for everyone, but the benefits of that atonement is activated when you believe. You see, the Bible teaches that Christ provided redemption for everyone universally. The death of Christ is the basis for the salvation of all men. But scripture does not call upon men to believe in a salvation that they already have. Rather, they are to receive the forgiveness they desperately need. The gospel does not simply inform the elect that they are saved. It exhorts all men to repent and to believe so that they might be saved. But the Bible also teaches that there is a limiting aspect to redemption. That the death of Christ secures salvation only for those who believe. So what about those for whom the Savior died who yet reject him? What about those who Jesus made the sacrifice but deny him? In their case, the atonement testifies against them and serves as the basis of their condemnation. The blood of Jesus that remains is not wasted, but serves as a testimony of their condemnation. Say if it were even possible for them to live life rightly, it's not. But say if it were, their condemnation is still legal because God's blood lay there on the table. The basis of your condemnation. But if you want Jesus, you can have him at any point. This whole idea right here can be summarized in this way. Christ died to make possible the salvation of all men and to make certain the salvation of those who believe. But is my salvation secure? Quincy, can I lose my faith? When I was a Pentecostal, um, I was an Arminian, okay? And, uh, but every time I sinned, I thought I was going to lose my salvation. So I'd come to the altar, I'd speak in tongues and tarry, and I'll try to get myself in order so that I, you know, I won't, so God will love me and so that I don't go to hell, you know? And so that was my Arminian theology. But then when I became a Calvinist, I was like, yeah, my salvation is secure. It will never be lost. But I always questioned whether or not I was part of the elect. <laughs> Like, am I, Lord, am I one of them? I can't tell. Uh, uh, sometimes I don't know. <laughs> but I want to encourage everyone this morning who may have had that issue that I had, that you are in fact free to believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you are chosen. If you believe in Jesus, you are his, you are elected. And if you stay in Jesus, your salvation is secure. The Bible is given us literal truth when it says that Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. The only basis for assurance of your salvation is not the works that you do, but the objective work of Jesus Christ. I hope you're understanding what I'm trying to say here. 
But then how is my salvation secure if I'm free to leave God at any time? How is it really secure if I'm free to leave God at any time? Well, we need to recall that God knows everything that you would do in every situation. And so he has placed us in certain places, our race, our family, and our present circumstances where he knows how we would freely act, where we would freely remain in him. Remember, the most position is that before anything was created, God conceived of everything you would do. If you were this height, if you had lived in Jesus' time, if you had been perhaps a, 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 a different kind of person, different personality, and God seen it all before him, and he looked at it and he said, I want my children be, to be free, so you'll be free in all of these different worlds, if you will. And then God said, this one fulfills my purpose. And he plucked this and determined this world. But in this world, you have been freely living for God but predestined because he plucked you, plucked this universe out of the host of many. And so, my brothers and sisters, you may stumble in this walk with Jesus, but you would never leave the trail. And so, my brothers and sisters, the perseverance of your faith is a promise. I'll say that again. The perseverance of your faith is a promise, not a requirement for you to fulfill. You are saved, you were saved, and you will be saved. Amen. So let me give you some application, and I'm coming to my close. Uh, we covered so much today. And uh, again, if you have questions, my email will be displayed at the end. So then how are we to respond to the fact that Jesus chose us, or through in Jesus we've been chosen from the beginning to now? Well, for the non-believer, how you should respond is to quit getting out of the ambulance. The Lord has been pulling at your heart. He's been trying to get your attention for years. There's been not a day that God has not been trying to pursue you. You may not have known it. You may not have acknowledged it. But God has been trying to get your attention from the day you were born so that you might freely put your hope and trust in him. But Quincy, I have doubts. I have questions. There's some issues with some Christians I know. This, that, and the other. All of those are valid and there are answers to that. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to try out Jesus for yourself. Not because your husband's trying Jesus out or your friend or your sister or your wife or your cousin or your grandmother. I want you to do this. Here's a challenge. Try Jesus out for a month. See if he is not the God he says he is. And I, and I give you this, I give you this right now. God is so real. This is not a game. This is not a joke. This is not something we get up just to have fun with. You think I like having to uh, uh, mitigate myself to early morning Sundays when I can be at home sleeping or watching something else? No, but you know I come here because there is a God who wooed me, who chased after me, who said, you are enough. Come and try Jesus out for yourself. And so as we begin to pray, as the prayer team would come, come and get prayer. Now for the believer, how should we respond, my Lord? Remember what Paul said in verse 3? He said, praise God. He said, praise God. But why should I praise God? Because Paul said there are seven spiritual blessings for why you should praise God. He said you should praise God because you've been elected. You should praise God because you have been adopted, you have been reconciled, you have been redeemed, you have been forgiven, your mind which once was darkened has been illuminated, and now you have an imperishable inheritance. 
Praise God with everything you are. Praise him with your body, your emotions, and the gifts you were given. Amen. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He tells us that we were predestined to be holy and blameless. Now, I cannot, we cannot achieve holiness overnight. But here is what I want you to do in addition to praise God. This is, an, this is an act we've forgotten about. I want you to, during our communion time, to ask the Holy Spirit, where have I been least like Christ? Where have I sinned the most? And I want you to ask a close friend and a spouse sometime this week, where have I failed to be most like Christ? And I want you to devote this week to that sin, and I want you to co-labor with the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, I want to be more like you. I want to get rid of this sin. So let me close this morning with my final thoughts. I know we went very theological this morning. We, we talked a lot of theology. Uh, 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 but I have to confess that on a personal note, the inside of Molinism helped me to get rid of my frustration with God. I was so mad at how he can be in control of everything, yet man is free at the same time. And so for a number of years, I denied God was in control of anything. Because it just didn't make sense. The evil I've witnessed, the sicknesses I've seen in man, and the hardship of life, I thought, you cannot be in control of everything. But through theological study, did you know the Holy Ghost works through theological study? Did you know the Holy Spirit works when you're in your word studying? Through study, I found a model, Molinism, that's not perfect, but eases my frustration and is faithful to scripture that allows me to preach the gospel with confidence. So let me, if you missed everything I said this morning, I leave you with this. If you missed everything I said this morning, this is all you need to take away. Predestination is God's sovereign act of choosing his people, which are those who have been freely chosen, which are those who have freely chosen him and who were chosen in Jesus before the universe was created by God's honor and favor so that his people would be holy, love him, and give him praise for his many spiritual blessings. And we should respond by praising God and striving to be holy. Amen. Let us pray. If you'd be so kind to stand on your feet as we pray. Dad, we thank you that though you have a mystery before us, you have predestined us. You have called us out before our mother's womb existed and said, you are my son, you are my daughter, and you will live this world, to, you will live in this world to be a light. And so dad, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would allow us to be a light in this city. Allow us to be a light in our neighborhood. Allow us to be a light on our job because you are a God who is worthy of praise. You are a God who is worthy of all the honor. In the name of the Father and the name of the Son we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time we're going to worship and we're going to partake in communion. Communion is a symbol